Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 441, God Bothering. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, members are learning all about the early tournament and the raw chaos that it unleashed upon the world. It honestly sounds like a lot of fun. And you can listen to that episode and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Peggy, Amy, and Keith for signing up already. Northumbria was back at it again. The continental bishop turned earl was dead. Most of his men lay slain at Gateshead or were barbecued in that church. And any who were left alive were locked inside Durham Castle. The problem was that the Normans were experienced in chivalric warfare, and their castles were well-designed to withstand a direct assault. And, predictably, Simeon tells us that the Northerners took pretty heavy losses on that initial attack upon Durham Castle. So they fell back and lay siege, while the rest of their comrades, quote, were raging up and down the city, end quote. What had started as a riot at a council had blossomed into a full-blown rebellion, and news of it was spreading fast. About 18 miles to the north was the monastery of Jarrow, and it wasn't long at all before they heard what had happened to Bishop Walcher. Now, the monks of Jarrow weren't the same as the monks of Ely. They weren't at all interested in rebellions and guerrilla wars. And honestly, considering that they had King Malcolm to the north and King William to their south, I really can't blame them. I think I'd stay out of politics as well if I was in that position. And so, upon hearing the news of what happened to Bishop Walcher, they boarded a little boat, sailed down to Gateshead, and picked through the corpses left behind. They were looking for the fallen bishop. And Simeon tells us that actually, this was a difficult task. Even though they were familiar with Bishop Walcher, it took a long time for them to figure out which body was his, because Walcher, and presumably all the rest of the fallen people there, were completely stripped of every vestment, adornment, and shred of clothing. Also, his body had been badly mutilated. But somehow, they picked him out through the macabre crowd, and they ferried him back to Jero, where he was given a funeral. And I'm thankful to Simeon for this detail. Gruesome as it is, it's humanizing. And it reminds us that not everyone was on board with the violence and the ruthlessness of this era. Though at the same time, the monks of Jero reserved this treatment for just one bishop. I guess the rest of the people who fell at Gateshead were on their own. Anyway, while Walter was getting a hasty funeral, the siege in Durham was dragging on. And the people of Durham weren't soldiers, or at least most of them weren't. These were just average people who had risen up, and so they weren't all that experienced with siege warfare, nor all of the logistic and strategic headaches that it entails. They also weren't experienced with the mind-bending boredom of a siege war. And remember, this wasn't a carefully planned military campaign that they'd undertaken. This was a popular uprising. This whole thing was riding on adrenaline and momentum, and that momentum had stalled at the walls of Durham Castle. 
So after four days, they lifted the siege and decided to try something new. They disappeared into the woods and wild places of Northumbria. Now, Simeon doesn't tell us precisely what their plan was, or even if there was a plan. He just tells us that they all went off in different directions, which sounds like once the excitement of the moment wore off, they realized they were in way over their heads and decided their best path forward was to hide from whatever horrors the Normans would surely send their way. Though it is possible that some of them, or even maybe many of them, were looking to go into the woods and pull off a Harroward-style insurgency. I really don't know, but if I had to guess, I'm guessing they were panicking and were scattering before William could send his response. And sure enough, it wasn't long before word of the rebellion reached the south. But William wasn't there. Despite all the effort, despite all the suffering, despite all the killing that had taken place to put William on the throne, when it came down to it, he simply preferred the chairs that he had back in Rouen. He conquered England, but it didn't mean he liked England. Though, to be fair, right now, he probably had a pretty good excuse for being back in Rouen, you know, considering all the family chaos that had been taking place on the continent. And in his absence, William had left England under the care of his half-brother, Bishop Odo. And so it was Odo who was now responsible with dealing with the rebellion at Durham. And that was bad news for the North. Because Odo, well, he was at least as bad as his brother. Don't get distracted by his title of bishop. Just because he had a fancy scarf doesn't mean that he was a man of God in any way that we might recognize today. And actually, the kind of person that Odo was and his behavior within the church makes him an excellent example of why the church was currently embroiled in a bit of a civil war and also what the stakes of this fight were. You see, the church of the mid to late 11th century was in a pitched battle over the very meaning of the institution and what its role in society would be. On the one side was Pope Gregory and his allies, who sought to institute a suite of rules intended to curb church excesses. And on the other side were all of the people who rather enjoyed those excesses. People like Bishop Odo. And you might recall that one of the best recorded and longest tried legal cases from this period of English history was all because Bishop Odo had defrauded both the crown and the archdiocese of Canterbury. So when it came to church excesses, Bishop Odo was something of a savant. And what's interesting about Odo and what makes him such a useful case study is that he also endowed his own ecclesiastical buildings and actually dumped a lot of wealth into those projects. Which means that Odo was stealing from the church with one hand and giving to the church with the other. And while that might seem like a contradiction, it wasn't. Because he was taking from the part of the church that was under the control of other church officials and he was giving to his own part of the church. This was about Odo's money. And it was about Odo's power. And so you can see from his behavior how Odo would sit on one side of this holy rift. And the Pope and his reformers would sit on the other side. And Odo wasn't sitting alone. 
there were a lot of men of the cloth who hold the very same set of, well, values, for a lack of a better term. Oda was also ambitious. Like, really ambitious. He was ambitious enough, in fact, that when Pope Gregory's enemies began muttering that they should have a different pope and that Odo would be great in that position, Odo agreed. And stick a pin in that one because we're going to be coming back to it. Odo also had another personality trait that was influential enough that it made it into our history books. He was vicious. You might remember that in the early conquest period, Odo and Fitzosborne had been left in charge of England. And within months, their leadership style had the English nobility pleading for leniency, or at the very least, an end to all this raping. And Odo let that call go to voicemail. Though on that last point, Pope Gregory and his reformist allies weren't all that concerned with the violent part of Odo's personality. Their vision of reform really only went so far. And honestly, the papacy of this era liked a bit of viciousness, you know, provided that it was pointed in a direction that they approved of. And actually, you'd be hard-pressed to find a bishop from this era that hadn't led an army at one point or another. Hell, Odo wasn't even William's most warlike bishop. Coutance had that honor. But while God apparently wasn't too fussed about Odo's cruelty and violence, the people of the North were. Because Odo was preparing an army to deal with the rebellion in Durham. And word travels fast. And so William, now aware of the situation in England and unencumbered by a dynastic civil war, was hurrying across the channel. And once there, he ordered Odo to march north and deal with the rebels. Now, you might be wondering why William didn't go up there himself. I mean, it's his kingdom after all. Well, he was getting older. He was also getting bigger. You might recall that during the invasion, he seemed to have a habit of stress eating. Well, it doesn't look like that went away, and nothing is more stressful than family drama. So William, at this point in his life, well, he was far from in peak form. And we should also remember that the last time that William went into the field, he was wounded badly enough that it was mentioned in the records. And it's unclear if he was able to make a full recovery from whatever that injury was. So looking at all of this, it's unsurprising that he decided to stay in the South and let Odo handle the upstarts instead. And besides, the king had some paperwork to fill out. You see, William had been a bit of a naughty boy. He'd been fighting with damn near everyone, up to and including his own kids. He'd engaged in campaigns of extermination. He'd allowed his soldiers to rape, pillage, and murder on a shocking scale. And all of that was starting to become a problem for Pope Gregory. And it's easy to see why. You see, even with the penitential ordinance for the crimes of the conquest that had been issued under Pope Alexander, William had not chilled out. And now, the new pope, Pope Gregory, was trying to convince his people that having sex with your wife or running a payday loan business on the side was just too unholy for the men of the cloth. And that's a bit of a heavy lift to make when Greg's hand-picked king was out there, you know, mass murdering. Because while celibacy wasn't part of the Ten Commandments, murder sure as hell was. 
And while even a cursory look at church history and the subjects of their councils reveals that warfare and killing at this point wasn't really at the top of the church's concerns, I mean, as I said earlier, there were a lot of warrior bishops out there, and it wasn't like all these reformists were staunch pacifists. The fact was that the Pope was preaching reform while his hand-picked boy was out there breaking the Ten Commandments and generally being a greedy, destabilizing jackass. And that just reeked of hypocrisy. And that hypocrisy was no doubt like catnip for the Pope's opponents. And the Pope had a lot of opponents. I mean, reformist archbishops were getting stoned, and other monks were rioting over these reform attempts. And that's just the fights within the church. The secular authorities were mad as hell as well. King Henry of Germany had even gone so far as to declare that actually, Gregory wasn't the Pope at all. He was just some guy named Hildebrand, and no one should take him seriously. So things were getting a bit dicey for Greg, and William was just making it worse. And it's salt in the wound. William should have been helping him with this. He was supposed to be the Pope's guy. And the Pope could really use a guy right about now. But rather than being a stalwart ally defending Greg from all these sinful jerks, William wasn't showing him the time of day and wasn't even bothering to pay his tithes. And taking their cue from their leader, there were also church officials within Normandy and England who were now ignoring Rome. And I'm talking about major officials, like bishops and archbishops. This whole thing was a mess. But it wasn't all bad news. The last few years had shown everyone that William wasn't invincible. And it looks like the Pope took notice because he sent a legate over to William and basically said, hey, let's have a talk, buddy. Now, unfortunately, the legate appears to have delivered the Pope's wishes orally because we don't have any sort of document or letter from the Pope. Thankfully, though, we do have other documents from other sources that provide insight on the situation. And so we know that the legate demanded that William follow through on his promise to serve as the Pope's vassal. They also notified him that he would have to provide back payment for all the missing years of Peter's pence. And the legate appears to have also made a point that this was dutifully paid back when England was under English rule. But it had lapsed since William had, you know, taken the crown. The Pope was clearly turning the screws here. And I wonder if this legate was sent during Robert's rebellion and while the Scottish invasion was still going on. Because it seems like it was sent when the Pope had a bit of hope here that he could get one over on William. Unfortunately for Pope Gregory, though, things had been moving very fast. I mean, Robert's rebellion had started in 1078. He'd wounded William and Rufus and killed the bastard's horse in early 1079. In April of 1079, the Pope had issued that bull stripping power from the Archdiocese of Rouen, and William hadn't been able to do anything about that, which probably put some wind in Rome's sails. A few months later, in September of 1079, King Malcolm invaded England and met no resistance. And this was also around the same time that Matilda went on her German holiday. And so everything was looking pretty damn bad for William in 1079. And it's not hard to imagine that the papal legate was sent during this period. 
In fact, Pope Gregory might have even intervened during Robert's rebellion in an effort to gain William's goodwill. But if he had, I think he woefully misunderstood the person that he was dealing with. Because nothing about William suggests that he'd be amenable to having an overlord. Nothing about him even suggests that he likes somebody getting involved in his business. And you definitely don't get the sense that he would tolerate someone trying to gain an advantage over him during times of distress. And where this becomes a problem is in mid-1080. Because in mid-1080, William's situation had changed dramatically. And almost all of these problems were gone. And that's about the time when William wrote back to Gregory. Which, obviously, he couldn't have done himself. So, I imagine all of this began with him saying something like, Okay, nerds, take this down. But in old French. Anyway. Here's what he said, quote, to Gregory, the most excellent shepherd of the Holy Church, William, by the grace of God, the glorious king of the English and Duke of the Normans, sends his friendly greetings. Hubert, the legate you sent to me, most religious father, has urged me to do fealty to you and your successors and give better thought to the money which my predecessors used to give to the Church of Rome. The latter, I accept. The other, I refuse. It was never my purpose, and it is not now, to do any fealty. I neither promise to do it, nor do I find that my predecessors ever did it to your predecessors. The money has been collected negligently during the three years I've been in France, but now, by divine mercy, I have returned to my kingdom. I am sending you through Hubert what has been collected and the balance will be forwarded at a convenient opportunity through the envoys of our vassal, Archbishop Lanfranc. Pray for us and the state of our realm, for we have always loved your predecessors, and it is our sincere desire to love you above all others and to hold to you most obediently, end quote. And, I don't know guys, I feel like Norman Nice could give Wisconsin Nice a run for its money here. Because that was one of the most polite slaps to the face I have ever seen. And I wonder if William's comment about how it was God who had restored him to his kingdom was also some sort of barb. After all, we know that William really had a gift for barbed comments. And telling the Pope that his boss had put him back in power, you can see how that might have been a bit of a knife. But regardless of whether or not that particular comment was venomous, this whole reply was an open-handed slap, delivered with a smile. Because the Pope would get his money, eventually, but he would get nothing more. That main thing that Pope Gregory wanted, the main thing he needed, the sole purpose of this entire miserable enterprise, the idea that a king would serve under a Pope, yeah, that was just pillow talk, baby. It's never going to happen. And just in case Pope Gregory didn't get the message, Edmer tells us that William then went on to make a few religious changes in England, deliberately ensuring that everyone, even the Pope, would know who's in charge. Edmer tells us that William declared that the Pope wasn't to be recognized as the Pope within England, except through the king's express authorization. Furthermore, the Pope couldn't issue decrees in England without William's approval, and any rulings of the ecclesiastical courts of England 
couldn't be appealed to the Pope. Bishops could only travel into and out of England with approval of the king. And as for papal legates, they were to be excluded entirely unless expressly invited by the king. And if the Pope wanted to write any letters to anyone, well, if that letter was going into England, it would have to be delivered directly to the king. And then he'd decide what to do with it. So this means that the Pope had no way to communicate directly to anyone in England. William was instituting the medieval equivalent of the Great Firewall. However, this plan only blocked the Pope and his continental allies from getting into England. It did nothing to stop any of his Pope's friends already in England from creating problems for William. But William had a solution for that, too. He decreed that bishops couldn't excommunicate any of the king's barons or servants without the king's express approval regardless of what they had done. And considering that excommunication was the church's main weapon, that whole institution had just been defanged. And the scale and passion of this response is what makes me think that the legate was sent while William was on the ropes. Because the king's reaction, now that he had regained control, just smacks of spite. Not strategy, not fear, just pure emotional strike back. But speaking of spite, Bishop Odo had arrived in Durham. And, well, I'll let Simeon describe it. Quote, Odo, Bishop of Bayou, who was second only to the king and many of the chief nobles of the kingdom, came to Durham with a large body of troops. And in revenging the bishop's death, they reduced nearly the whole land into a wilderness. The miserable inhabitants who, trusting in their innocence, had remained in their homes, were either beheaded as criminals or mutilated by the loss of some of their members. False accusations were brought against some of them in order that they might purchase their safety and their life by money. Moreover, the aforesaid bishop had removed some of the ornaments of the church, one of which was a pastoral staff of marvelous material and worksmanship, for it was made of sapphire. And this, having been deposited in the castle, which was made a garrison for the troops, speedily vanished. End quote. Classic Bishop Odo. Simeon goes on to tell us that the people of Durham, quote, either died by some kind of violent death or, abandoning their homes and property, wandered in exile in foreign lands, end quote. The bishop and his army ravaged the region between the Tees and the Tynes with such a ferocity that it rivaled William's harrying. And I'm not going to go into detail of this like I did with the harrying, because at this point, I think everyone understands the horror of what the scribes are describing. But just know that these people were facing it again. Odo was indiscriminately killing and exterminating the people of Durham and the surrounding countryside, regardless of their guilt or innocence. And for Northumbria, this was the final nail in the coffin. Meanwhile, back south in Winchester, William summoned his rebellious son, Robert. You see, he had learned some troubling things about the state of affairs up in the north. Not the thing with Odo, no, that was fine. Good, in fact. No, the thing that was worrying the bastard was that King Malcolm III had invaded last fall 
and he had faced no consequences for it. And that simply would not do. So the bastard ordered Robert to assemble an army and march upon Scotland. And I suspect that this actually was William's version of being a good dad and mending bridges. I mean, he was never going to be the type of guy to apologize or even ask his son how he was feeling. That wasn't William. If it was, his wife probably wouldn't have gone to Germany. But reading this, bless his tiny bacon-wrapped heart, I do feel like he was trying. Because William was finally giving Robert the responsibility and authority he'd spent his whole life asking for. And while William could have had several reasons for this choice, I mean, maybe he was out of commanders. Maybe he was just hoping that Robert would die on campaign and solve the succession problem. Maybe he was just tired of arguing with Matilda. There are all kinds of reasons why this might have happened. But I like to imagine that get out there and kill some Scots was just William's version of asking his son if he wanted to go play catch. And Robert leapt at the chance. And the cat's in the if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Home.